Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very, very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, I'm really thrilled today. I have the opportunity to interview someone who I think you, I actually know you're going to love. Um, She is uh, MD, but uh, a mind-body medicine physician, the author of seven books, um, Mind Over Medicine, which is a New York Times bestseller, the founder of Whole Health Medicine Institute, a mystic. We're going to get into that. And uh, her TED Talks have been viewed millions of times. We're going to get into that as well. Welcome to um, Soul Talk, Lisa Rankin. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. I've been looking forward to uh, kind of diving in. I remember, uh, must have been years ago, um, I think it was at ATL, we, we were having, maybe it was TL, I think it was ATL, uh, we were having lunch, or maybe TLC, we were having lunch, and I was sitting next to you, and we, we got into a bit of a conversation, and I thought, wow, this, she has some real deep perspectives on health that I think will cause us to question and evolve. And so, um, as we dive into the conversation, I would love to just get a sense of like, especially for those that don't know you, what, what, first, what inspired you to pursue the path of medicine? Um, what, what, what triggered that? Was there a moment, an event to kind of tell us about that? How did you yeah. Get well, my dad was a doctor. So, you know, it's it, the part of me that was trying to connect with my dad as a little girl, he was always in the hospital. And I figured out by the time I was about 10, that if I went to the hospital with my dad, I got attention from him. <laughs> right. So I scrubbed in on my first surgery when I was 12. I was a candy striper by the time I was 13. My first job was phlebotomy, drawing blood in the hospital. So I kind wow. of grew up in hospitals and I, you know, would do rounds with my dad. And, you know, basically I figured out that it, that that was the only way to really um, get to be close to him because he was so busy in the hospital all the time, really sort of workaholic. Mm. Um and so, you know, I, on one level, like, depending on how, when I'm telling the story on one level, like the story goes that I was seven years old and my parents had the chimney sweep come to the house and they found a nest of newborn baby squirrels that still had their eyes fused and their mother was gone. And basically my parents were trying to use it as a, as an, you know, a way to teach me about the cycle of life. These babies are going to mm-hmm. die because they don't have their mother. And I was like, not having any of that. And I made them take me to the veterinarian so I could learn how to take care of these squirrels and try to nurse them, you know, into adulthood. And I ended up becoming sort of the squirrel girl. I was in the paper with all my squirrels mm-hmm. and like people would bring me injured squirrels. And that was kind of my thing until I went to uh, medical school to learn how to treat humans. So I always had that, 
that, you know, young part of me that cared about the, um, the life force mm. of other beings. But so that's one, one version of the story. And then, you know, the other is probably a more trauma based <laughs> story of, you know, just wanting to be close to my dad, but I don't yeah. remember. I honestly don't remember ever not wanting to be a doctor. Wow. Wow. So something yeah. that was always there. What led to your evolution in a whole different direction, kind of like out of the traditional medical model? I mean, it sounds like you were successful and built something like, like, like what, where did you start? What led to your questioning and expanding beyond the traditional paradigm? Yeah, well, you know, I went to places like Duke and Northwestern. So I was very conventionally trained. My dad was very conventionally trained. And my mother was a fundamentalist Christian and my father was a scientific materialist. Mm. So there was never a place in the middle of science and spirituality that was safe in my family. Like for my mother, that middle zone was the work of the devil. And for my father, that middle zone was like charlatanism and quackery. So I didn't really get exposed to any of the sort of mind body world or, you know, intersections of science and spirituality in, in my upbringing or in medical school, I, you know, I was very much raised in the sort of scientific materialism after, especially after I'd left the church mm. when I was 18. So, you know, when I, I was very idealistic going into medicine, I didn't really have any doubts about it. I was very certain that that was my path and it didn't take me long at all to really experience um, what Harvard burnout researchers are now calling moral injury, mm. you know, it, which is a term that originally was used to re to apply to return war veterans where, you know, they were following orders and doing what they were told, but they knew it, they were violating their own conscience in what they were doing. And that's how I started feeling very quickly that I knew there was more to healing than I was able to deliver in the constraints of the conventional healthcare system. When I started seeing patients, I was expected to see 25 patients a day in 1999. And by the time I quit in 2007, I was expected to see 40 patients a day, which if you wow. do the math, wow. meant that I was, you know, I had two patients every 15 minutes or so. So you can't do healing work in seven and a half minutes. That's mm. like logistically impossible, not to mention, you know, the sort of um, the disease based model and the um, focus on pharmaceuticals and, you know, the denial of basically the entire feminine principle in medicine, which is a whole other conversation. But I, I, I couldn't reckon with the sort of cognitive dissonance of that intense drive to be a healer, um, which felt to me like a spiritual calling the way, you know, priests are called to the priesthood and the reality that I was harming people in my attempt to heal people. And when the British Medical Journal came out with the article compiling CDC data, basically showing before the pandemic that um, preventable medical error was the number three cause of death in the United States, third only to number one, heart disease and number two, cancer. And this was just like crushing for me. How, how are we killing people when we're tr hoping to, you know, save lives? So I just couldn't, I mean, now I'm more capable of holding that paradox of like, you know, I think almost everything in the realm of healing at this point is double-edged sword. That it's almost like we we can't risk 
Well, anytime we intrude upon someone else's body, psyche, um, soul, we risk Mm. damaging them. But I think we need to do a better job of at least doing our best to first do no harm. And so I I just couldn't wrestle with that. I ended up suicidal. I was taking seven medications for not, I wasn't on any psych meds. I probably should have been, but I was on seven medications for medical problems by the time I was, you know, 36 years old. And my doctors told me I'd have to be on them for the rest of my life. And I just had this strong intuition, like I'm going to die this way. Wow. So it, it felt like a matter of life or death. And I had a newborn baby. My husband at the time had never worked during our marriage. So I was the sole provider and still had college, you know, college and medical mm. school debt. Mm. And so it was no small thing to then leave the hospital in 2007. And I wrote a whole book called The Anatomy yeah. of a Calling that tells the story. It's a long story wow. of how I went from there to here where you know, now I've been, I guess that's been, gosh, 15 years. Mm. Um, and it started sort of as a journey at Esalen Institute. And tomorrow I'm going to Esalen mm-hmm. to Amazing. teach a month long program for burnout recovery for um, frontline healthcare workers. Wow. So it's kind of a full circle moment. Full circle. I was that burned out healthcare worker when I first went there 15 years ago. That's beautiful. Um, you triggered a whole bunch of questions now, but, 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 but something I can't let go because you just threw it out and then we just kept going. But um, the denial of the feminine principle in medicine. Now that is a, that's a session in and of itself. Yeah. That's but, why, that's why but, I put but, it in parentheses. But, but, but I really, could, could you speak to that? The denial of the feminine principle in medicine and what do you mean? Well, think about it. If you think about what makes a good doctor, right? What makes a good doctor, in my opinion, Mm. is compassion, um, deep listening, the ability to hold safe, sacred space to evoke the healing process in the individual. Um, Yeah, a, a sense of intuition, of being able to feel into the sense of what is most right for this patient in this moment, the, um, the open heart, Mm. empathy, um, the ability to, um, tolerate sitting in the face of suffering and being present and with someone in their suffering, like the ability to, um, self-regulate our own emotions so we can emotionally be present and resonant with someone's grief or, terror or rage or sadness or whatever is coming up. Um, None of those things were acceptable (laughs) in the hospital systems that I was educated in. Like it was all masculine principle. It was, you know, goal oriented domination, competition, drive, like get in quick violate people's boundaries, like solve the problem, fix the issue, take all the credit, don't include the patient because you're the expert. Um, You know, it was very, very um, fast, sort of efficient, Mm. unemotional, rational, logical, you know, evidence-based. And 
those quality, those subjective qualities of healing, which is what my latest book was all about, Sacred Medicine, those those things that science doesn't necessarily even know how to measure, like the consciousness of yes. the practitioner. Right. Yeah. Um, those things are just really minimized. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not that there aren't doctors that embody those qualities and use them, but even the ones that really do, they do it sort of like in the closet almost. It's 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 something that I was flagrantly shamed for in my training. Um, I, there's a story in the Anatomy of a Calling. The first chapter is a story of a night where I delivered four dead babies. And this is a, this is a gut wrenching thing for a mother, of course, to deliver a dead baby. But to be a woman physician and to be delivering these dead babies is also a gut wrenching thing. And so I would I would wind up wrapping these babies in a blanket and like crawling into the bed with these women and crying, mm. the whole, holding their babies with them. And I just got, you know, reamed over the coals by my most mostly male professors like for expressing any emotion or for having any compassion or empathy uh, or for not having a thick enough skin. I was basically told like, you know, you got to buck up Rankin or you're never going to amount to anything in this business. As if that quality of being there woman to woman in the face of intense suffering was something to be sort of ferreted out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, you know, that that night ended with me on the floor of the locker room, like bawling my eyes out with like the male professor, like banging on the locker room door and two female midwives wow. blocking the door. Wow. And holding me and rocking me while I cried. And I, I'll never forget one of them saying, you know, don't ever let them break you. And so part of why I quit was I, I was at that threshold where I was like, something important in me is going to have to die for me to stay. Mm. And I wasn't sure mm. if it was going to be my actual body, but like that feminine principle aspect of myself, which made me a really good doctor, yeah, was really not, not only not welcomed, but actively judged and shamed and sort of... um yeah, push, push aside. And I think that's getting better. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm 53 now, so it's been, it's been many years since I was a medical resident. Uh, and I think there is at least an attempt to make more space for that in medical education now. Mm. Um, and, and there are more women in medical school than there are men at this point. So, I you know, a, I think that's a great thing. actually. Yeah. 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 So I think just the sheer number of women in medical education, it's not, it's not how to get rich anymore. You know, mm. I, I was making a third at the peak of my career. I was making a third of what my father was making in 1975 back when his house cost, you know, one tenth of what my house cost. Mm. So I, I think in some way that's a good thing because People go into it more from sort of a, the way you know a, a, a social justice and sort of yeah. um, service oriented place Mission. rather than power and money and yeah I think that's probably a good thing for patients. Um, I had some very kind of practical, practical but personal human questions, but before we go there. Let's see where this goes. Um, as a physician, as a mystic, as you know, sacred medicine pioneer, 
when you look at the last two years with the pandemic, um, through your lens, what do you see? What is happening? Because a lot of people went into profound fear and confusion and, you know, vax, anti-vax. I mean, every, everything went haywire and people didn't know what the hell was going on and some people still living in fear and just a lot of kind of confusion out there. And, and so um, you talk about intrusion, one group of people feeling like our rights are being taken in terms of what we put into our body, what we don't put into, I mean, all these things. And so spiritual, medical, coming together, could you shed some light on what you see and maybe help us make sense of it, you know, on, on as many levels as, as you see it? Yeah, well, that's a can of worms, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when I came out, when I quit my job um, as a doctor and I did my first TED Talk and then Mind Over Medicine came out, was a New York Times bestseller, and then I mm -hmm. did a PBS special about it. So I got a lot of attention kind of all at once around 2013 um, for the message that I was bringing out, which was that, you know, I've, I've never been against conventional medicine. I've just seen it as incomplete. Right, so right. I was, you know, mind over medicine was about all of the sort of scientifically verified aspects of what makes you optimally healthy beyond what conventional medicine offers. Things like the importance of community to mm. a healthy body and the health, the extreme health risk, the number one public health epidemic that before the pandemic, um, in my opinion, was this epidemic of loneliness. And there's a ton of scientific data. And, and my spiritual teacher, who's also the teacher of Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General, we were all in conversation about this from a public health standpoint. How do we address the epidemic of loneliness as it impacts the physical body? And is that the responsibility of doctors? So things like that were part of the conversation. I did a whole TEDx talk on the, called the number one public health issue doctors aren't talking about, which was about loneliness and community. And of course, the pandemic only made that worse. Um, and so, you know, that whole mind-body aspect of the impact on your health, of the um, the health of your relationships, of your, your work, of your relationship to money, of your living environment, of your mental health, of all these other aspects of health. And so people kind of had put me in that category, I guess, of some sort of new age healer or whatever, which was always not me. I've always mm -hmm. been a conventional medical doctor who's absolutely thinks conventional medicine is life-saving. We've increased the, um, you know, the life expectancy of humans. Um, we've more than doubled our life expectancy in the past hundred mm -hmm. years. And that's only because of conventional medicine. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I've never been one to undermine that. But what I didn't realize is how polarized the sort of conventional medical world and the sort of new age natural yeah. healing, like I take my supplements and do my yoga and that's all mm -hmm. the medicine I need kind of thing, which I never was part of that world. Like I don't consider myself mm -hmm. a new ager. I don't buy into that belief system. I think it's actually quite a dangerous and toxic mm -hmm. belief system. And I've been pretty public about that. Mm -hmm. um, and 
but somehow like uh, that community sort of adopted me as this is a doctor who's giving scientific validity to what we've been teaching and knowing intuitively for a long time. And, and I didn't really realize that until the pandemic, like Mm. I kind of always thought of myself as a bridge between those worlds. And, and I lived pretty comfortably on that bridge until the pandemic. Mm. And so after I published mind over medicine, I, I had spent the past 10 years researching the book that came out in April of this year, 2022 called sacred medicine, which was basically the sequel to mind over medicine. And this was originally, it was going to be part two of mind over medicine. Mind over medicine was going to be everything science can prove about what makes you, your body miracle prone outside of the sort of conventional medical world. And then sacred medicine was going to be all the subjective aspects of healing, the things that science doesn't really know how to even measure, much less validate with evidence-based medicine. And so I travel all over the world working with you know, shamans in Peru and Qigong masters from China and Balinese healers and kahunas from Hawaii and uh, Native American healers and indigenous people all over the world. And that led me to working with energy healers in the U.S. and abroad of going to places like Lourdes and other pilgrimage sites that were reputed to be places of healing. And ultimately, um, the sort of holy grail of what I found was was the sort of cutting edge trauma therapists who mm. basically were doing all of that better than most of the other healers. Mm. And so um, I had just been sort of nose down in working on that book in, in the beginning of the pandemic. So while everybody else was sort of trying to figure this out, I was locked down in, in, a, in a small little coastal town in Northern California, trying to put 10 years worth of notes into a manuscript. And I finished the manuscript in September of 2020. And when I kind of looked up and I looked around, I was like, oh my God, what happened Mm -hmm. to the community, the mind, body, medicine, wellness, spiritual community? Because the majority of people that I had previously respected had gone just batshit crazy, like Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories, just full on COVID denialism, um, just propaganda and lying, and they were profiting from it. And it was so confusing to me because Mm. I was like 100% public health guidelines, like following the letter of the, you know, public health policy to the law. And I, I know a lot about public health. So I 100% agreed with those, um, those recommendations. And I'm part of a spiritual community that's a sangha of doctors run by Rachel Naomi Remen. And they are, you know, they were on the front lines at UCSF and Stanford. And so I was getting like a weekly report. And one of my best friends was a frontline COVID ER doctor. Um, So I was getting the, you know, I'm no longer in the hospital, but I'm getting the reports from the hospitals, from my friends, who I 100% trust. And one of my most trusted people is Rick Loftus, who's also from my spiritual community, who used to work for the CDC. And he's a trained public health doctor who was also an ICU hospitalist, um, really, really in the front lines. And so he was giving me a weekly report I was publishing on Facebook. And I um, I kind of came came up for air and I was like, Jesus Christ, what happened to Christiane Northrup? Like she wrote the mm-hmm. the foreword to my book 10 years ago. And like, mm-hmm. now she's saying that like, I mean, just absolute nonsense, like easily provable lies. Mm-hmm. 
And a whole lot of the people from TLC, where you and I were, Mm. I used to be part of that community. They just kind of went off the deep end. And so I started getting very vocal Mm. because for me, this was not just about not getting COVID. This was about social justice. And I've been a social justice activist my whole life. My sister's black. I was an African-American literature studies major in college. Like I've been sort of civil rights and human rights and LGBTQIA plus rights and the rights of the disabled and sort of the rights of, of oppressed and marginalized groups in the United States has been part of my sort of mission work for as long as I've been public. But I it wasn't as much on the forefront mm. that um, that that way of being in the world was now very polarized with sort of the white wellness community mm. of sort of yoga instructors and energy healers and spiritual teachers. And it really became obvious to me um, watching some of the communities that I was in. And I started getting more and more public um, about taking a pretty firm stand. And it was very weird because here I've been like the whistleblower for the shadow of conventional medicine for 15 years. And now all of a sudden I'm defending, you know, Fauci, like, wow. you know, I'm like defending conventional medical doctors. I'm saying, wait, no, COVID's real. Like go, if you can find an N95, go do rounds with my friends. Right. Like, so it was very weird to be um, in this place where suddenly I felt like I was now a whistleblower for the sort of natural medicine, mind, body, medicine, energy healing community where I'm going like, Chris Northrup's lost her marbles. Do not follow her, like unsubscribe. Um, this is, you know, she's one of the disinformation dozen that Vivek Murthy, who is, you know, my ally um, as the Surgeon General is saying, you know, these people are responsible for more than, I think, 40% of the disinformation on the internet about COVID. So it was just very, very bewildering for me. And I ended up doing a whole lot of trauma therapy for myself of the trauma of having sort of been indoctrinated into the conventional medical world and then growing disillusioned mm. and sort of whistleblowing and then maybe thinking that it was better over in this other world of mind body medicine or spirituality or natural medicine or energy healing sacred medicine and realizing like wow that shit's worse that's worse that is more toxic than at least the conventional medical doctors have some boundaries and a board certification. And if you, mm. you know, if you do something unethical, you'll lose your license. And so mm. it was very confusing for me to try to hold these paradoxes. So there's a whole section in sacred medicine about the paradoxes of healing. Um, and so I ended up taking that manuscript that I'd written in September of 2020. I rewrote the entire book. I had wow. to throw out entire chapters um, that were sort of talking about the work of people you would know. These are people in TLC that I had spent years studying with, and they just went off the deep end. And I was like, I can't, I can't associate my name with any of these people anymore. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I couldn't go into, I was very triggered by like the public health world like why aren't they why aren't they talking about all the things that we actually know that could prepare us to survive mm. covid better 
from the natural healing and mind, body medicine and trauma healing world. Like, why aren't we educating people about that as part of public health as well? So I'll read you a couple of these paradoxes of healing because it kind of, that was a long winded way of trying to answer your questions, but I was trying to like continue to hold the middle ground. So you can heal yourself and you can't do it alone. Hmm. Keep an open mind and don't be so open that your brains fall out. (laughs) Be clear in your intention to heal and surrender attachment to outcomes. Yes. Trust your intuition and follow the science and apply critical thinking. Believe in magic and miracles and avoid indulging in magical thinking and denial. Mm. Your disease is not your fault and your healing journey is your responsibility. Be guided by germ theory and terrain theory. Your thoughts influence reality and your thoughts cannot control reality. So there's Mm. a whole bunch of those. Mm. Um, But I ultimately, what really, the the coalescence of the pandemic with George Floyd's murder and the increasing conversation among white people about the injustices of Black Lives Matter and all of that, like having it on video and having everybody be able to see what's been happening for centuries, really, in this country. Um, that coalescing with the pandemic and the the way in which COVID killed Black and Indigenous people and immigrant populations preferentially significantly higher rates of death and disability from COVID in the BIPOC community when compared to, you know, your average white Americans. So that's why to me, public health became a very clear social justice issue. And, and it really taught me and informed my way of teaching that I realized that I had been one of those people guilty of, of teaching too much about an individualistic path to health without appropriate awareness and communication about the social determinants of health that mm. no individual can control, right? Like no individual can control the impact on the nervous system of being a black man in America, for example, mm-hmm. my sister, a black woman in America. Mm. Like that is not something you can do all your personal empowerment work in the world. And it does not take away the fact that I am safer in the world than my sister is Mm. every day. Mm. And that, that gives me a kind of nervous system privilege that she doesn't have. And I really believe that that nervous system privilege, I just got COVID for the first time two weeks ago Mm. and I had a very easy case and I'm triply vaccinated. Mm. Um, And I, I had the privilege of being not on the front lines and not exposed and able to be isolated for the majority of this time. Um, and I had an easy case. Um, but I think that lack of nervous system privilege or that chronic, chronic nervous system dysregulation that, that can go along with not just personal trauma, not just childhood adversity or, um, you know, having developmental trauma from bad parenting or physical or sexual abuse or those sorts of adverse childhood experiences that we measure in the ACE scores. But those things that we don't even include when we're trying to measure someone's trauma history, like being an indigenous person living on a reservation where your land and your culture has been stripped from you, Mm. or 
you know, being a black person who was displaced from Africa and put in a country where we were, where there was enslavement and then social injustices and civil unrights ever since, you know, changing over the years, but, you know, continuing to this day. Mm. And so to me, following public health guidelines, like if we wanted to be, especially among the white community, if we wanted to be white allies, to me, yeah, I'm, I I understand people's desire for autonomy. I teach about yep. autonomy and sovereignty in the medical world and the importance of making your own decisions and not just, you know, blindly doing whatever your doctor tells you. I teach about that. Mm. But at the same time, I don't think it's an, a good enough argument to say, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated because my intuition is that it's not good for me. It's like, mm-hmm. that's, that's a collect. That's something that we had. We needed to do for the collective, and we failed. Mm. And we had one of the worst outcomes of COVID in this country that, compared to the rest of the world, where people trusted authority figures and were mostly complying, compliant with public health guidelines. And that's mm. that's largely because of. I mean, we have good reason not to trust authority figures. And I wound yep. up working on a Biden task force to try to address vaccine hesitancy as a trauma symptom, and we were trying me and and some other experts in the traumatology field were trying to sort of counsel the administration about how to do a much better job than they did about not shaming people and not taking away their sense of agency that Mm -hmm. trauma survivors must feel like they always have agency and they have a right to make a choice. And so, you know, the way that these public health guidelines were communicated were often very poorly delivered Mm -hmm. and really activated. I think um, that sort of don't tell me what to do rebellion and sort of um, and, and that was very damaging for a lot of, not just for the individuals that did that, but for, for oppressed communities that maybe Mm. didn't got the the brunt of that. Mm. Um, So anyway, like I said, that was a can of worms. Uh, thank you for going there and just share, yeah. you know, I, lo- I love hearing your perspective and, you know, I mean, I love hearing all sorts of perspectives mm-hmm. and I hope that folks listening, um, I think it's so, w- whether they agree with your perspective yeah. don't, or whatever, you know, whatever degree they do, you know, I think it's so important in our culture that we really open our mind to listen to opposing perspectives, different perspectives and make ourselves available. So thank you for, for really just sharing, you know, your truth. Yeah, yeah. And if and, anybody... And, 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 and being honest, because I think, you know, being in the wellness community that you are, and then kind of being seen as like, I don't know, a guru in the wellness, medical doctor, it, it, I think it takes, what I respect is that it takes a lot of courage for you to stand your truth and speak your perspective in the face of probably a lot of, you know, heat from the wellness community. And so I really, I really respect that. I want to jump into a question that I'm really curious about that I've been wanting to ask you. And I'm going to kind of probably throw two, if not three questions into one. Um, Healing. You've mentioned healing a few times. I've always been really fascinated with healing because as a kid, I grew up, like my first memories were, I mean, five, six years old, um, seeing 
Like I'll never forget seeing a crippled woman crawling on the floor. Thousands of people around, picks up the sand that this man walks on, wipes it on her face and stands up. He had no idea. A miracle. Um, same man will look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, why are you in this wheelchair? Stand up. And she would say, I haven't walked in 20 years. And he would say, stand up. And, you know, she would stand up. This man was my father. And so I grew up seeing so-called, like, incurable diseases, cancer, you know, life-threatening diseases. These things healed by my father week after week. Real shit that wasn't fake stuff on YouTube. But, like, I grew up seeing it every day. So I know it's real. Um, and yet there are many people that... They do all the right things and they meditate and they do the green juice and they do, you know, yoga and this frequency healing technique. And they, you know, and they've been thinking positive their whole lives and, and they die. And so from what you've seen, what are the real reasons? I mean, there's what we're told, but what, what are the real reasons that people get sick? So that's kind of part one, like re in reality, from the conventional, but also the wellness and the sacred medicine perspective, what are the real reasons you see people get sick? You mentioned loneliness, which I'd love to hear more about. So the reasons people get sick, but also um, how does healing happen? How does healing happen and can anyone heal? Well, those are three like million dollar questions. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm going to throw them at you. Like, like, like this is right? the moment. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when I, when I rewrote sacred medicine and I was like the, the original first chapter was like a miracle story. Mm. And my editor, my editor was like, please listen, don't start that way. Mm. She said, my daughter has done every single thing in the book. And like, she hasn't gotten her miracle. And sure, yes, it's inspiring. Yes. It's inspiring for some people to hear those stories. But she said they're rare. Yeah. And the majority of people are out there like desperate and mm. struggling and doing everything that they know how to do. And, you know, being the straight A patient, and they're not getting their miracle. So like, don't make me start the book that way. Like, fine, if you want to throw in your miracle stories later, but like address the fact that right yeah, now the yeah. person who is picking up your book is desperate yeah. and suffering. Mm. And meet me there. Meet me mm. there first. Mm. And I really was touched by that. And, you know, I was also, um, you know, I wanted to write a clinically relevant book that was also like, Maybe there's something I can put in here that I've learned over the 10 years of traveling around the world mm. that conventional medicine is not offering people and that the wellness world is not offering people. Mm. And that is, that is, was the promise. That's the hope and the promise of this book. And I, I did my best to deliver that. Um, and it's not a quick answer, you know, I mean, it's a whole book, so I don't have, but I really did like scour every discipline I could find, including like, I can't tell me how many years of tormenting Bill Bankston. <laughs> like mm -hmm. he called me the West coast pain in the ass. What WCPIA for short, mm -hmm. because this man who has been doing like rigorous scientific research, doing hands-on healing, curing cancer in mice, 
you know, and like his method works like 90 plus percentage of the time. Yeah. And he's written a book called The Energy Cure. And he's done a, an, a Sounds True audio program called Hands-On Healing. And he's just a nerd scientist, like in the, you know, the president of the SSE, the, the Society for Scientific Exploration, like with Rupert Sheldrake and all these other like really edgy, edgy scientists who are daring to study the things that are like, career destroying topics like mm. if you just if you're a legitimate scientist and you decide you're going to study hands-on healing like that's it kiss kiss tenure goodbye you know like you know kiss grant funding goodbye like people are, are you're now putting yourself in that category like rupert sheldrake is studying you know the sense of being stared at or how do homing pigeons know where home is or why do dogs know when their owners are coming home like mm. Mm. you know these are the kinds of things, these studies of consciousness and healing that will destroy careers, and it, it, which is very frustrating because how in the world are we going to actually validate whether they're real, how, figure out how they happen, determine any sort of mechanism of action, and then maybe be able to develop something clinically relevant that could help suffering and desperate people. So, um, you know, I, I asked that question to everybody I could think of to ask that question. And I, I mean, spoiler alert is like, I don't have an answer to that question. Mm. I don't think anybody does. And, you know, I, I had a dream towards the end of doing the research for this book, where I had this dream that like, I suddenly had found it. I had been given the Holy Grail. Like this is, here is how healing happens. Now you can control it. Right. And here's the recipe. Right. And in this dream, it was this moment of like <laughs> panic. Like, what would I do if I actually had the answer? Like, if we could actually control life and death, right? Like, or at least control premature illness, right? Obviously, we're not immortal. Yeah. Nobody's going to find the cure to immortality or whatever. But, you know, let's say we found a cure to any disease that would disable or kill you prematurely. Um, what would I do with it? And in this dream, it was so, it was so um, emotional for me, but in this dream it was like, I took this thing and I wanted to like give it to everybody because this Bodhisattva impulse of like wanting to ease the suffering of others was strong, mm -hmm. but there was like a stronger impulse in the dream. And I like took it and I buried it. <laughs> Mm. And so there's a part of me that is sort of glad I don't know the answer because ultimately, and I really saw this when I went to Lourdes, ultimately, like if I was God mm. and there was the possibility, and let's not even call it anything supernatural, if there is some way of bestowing a gift upon someone who is suffering and taking away their suffering the way your father did. Um, if that was something we could control and I don't know, like put it in a recipe, yeah. scientifically verify it, and then everybody could do it. Then where, wh how would we ever have that moment of raw humility mm -hmm. of like throwing ourselves surrender yeah. to the yeah. feet yeah. of mm -hmm. the mystery Mm. with a, a longing in our hearts for intervention, for 
relief from pain, from cure, from whatever, the miracle. Like we would never have a miracle mm. if we had a recipe, wow. right? Then it would just be science, mm. right? We don't consider vaccines miracles, but they, they still are. There's still miracles. Like people used to die of polio. Children were crippled all the time. Mm-hmm. We just had like a recent polio outbreak. Like that's, we have pretty much eradicated polio. That's a miracle. But people don't think of it as a miracle because we have a recipe. Right. Right. right? So I don't know. I don't know that I want the option of m- mystery taken. So, so are you saying there's not, there's not really a formula? Because you hear people like, and, and, and okay, I, I think it was a Dr. Joe Dispenza talking about like, to all the remission to the miracles and it's a, at least my understanding like anything can be cured no matter what there is kind of a formula that you that, that's my impression um, joe is one of the people i studied and got cut from my book i don't agree with his point of view i don't believe everything can get cured can you speak to that because because there was this idea that that i think sounds i mean there's something i don't know be- <sighs> um um I don't want to say optimistic, but there's something in us that that wants to believe. Like everything is possible, like no limits, everything. Or like anyone can become Elon Musk and be a billionaire. But I don't know if that's true because I think well, every, that's a it, very grandiose and narcissistic worldview. Right? Yeah. And so, I so, would so, so, so what is in a health sense? So what does what does someone do who let's say they they do have an illness and they're listening yeah. to let's say and I have no issue with Dr. Joe, but let's say listen to someone like that and they're doing everything, it's, it, it, it's not working necessarily. They still have their situation. But then if they hear you and they're like, well, I don't believe any, anything can be cured. How did they, no, that, like, that, did they That's not it? what I'm saying. I believe okay. things can be cured. I'm okay. just saying I don't believe everything can be cured with your thoughts. Okay. I believe some people are born with two copies of a recessive gene and they mm. live next to a toxic waste dump and they mm. can have the purest thoughts in the world. And, you know, maybe that will improve their outcome, but it's not going to likely cure their illness because they're still next to mm. poison mm. and they still have two copies of a recessive gene and they have cystic fibrosis. Mm. And they're going to probably need a lung transplant, a bilateral lung transplant to survive beyond. 25. And Mm. that's a miracle to survive beyond 25 if you have cystic fibrosis. So, and sure, if you have positive thinking and hope and a good attitude and you eat well and you move away from the toxic waste dump, you're definitely going to improve your outcome. But are you going to be cured from cystic fibrosis? Probably not. Mm. Now, Mm. you know, and that's why I said in one of the paradoxes of healing, like, you know, believe in magic and miracles and avoid magical thinking and denial. Yes. I think Dr. Joe, I don't even want to call him Dr. Joe. Joe promotes magical thinking. Mm. And a lot of people don't get miraculous treatment, real treatment, medical treatment, because they believe that all they have to do is put it into the vortex of my thoughts and like visualize my miracle and, Mm. and they die. 
And Conspirituality Podcast has done a fabulous job unpacking people like Joe and Chris Northrup and a lot of the sort of grandiose and um, narcissistic and, um, you know, conspiratorial um, wellness influencers during the pandemic. And they they had on some of the people that like lost their loved ones to Joe Dispenza because they denied they might have lost them anyway if they had had conventional medical treatment, but they really, really believed. I just have to 100% believe that I am going to be cured. And they weren't. And that's the majority of people that go to those workshops. The majority of them are not cured. So, but I do, you know, I'm, I've been studying spontaneous remission since 2009. And I'm now dating Jeffrey Rediger, who has been studying spontaneous remission since 2003. He's a Harvard physician who wrote a book called Cured, doing rigorous, rigorous research. When I say rigorous, most most miracle mm. stories on the internet, they disappear the minute you ask for before and after medical records and you want long-term follow-up. Mm. Um, and most of the people that I interviewed in Joe's community, for example, did not, if you applied any rigor, those stories fall apart. But Jeffrey has been um, collecting medical records, proven incurable illnesses, proven terminal diagnoses, and proven remission, and proven follow-up um, wow. since 2003. And his book is wonderful. And so, again, I don't want to take away the hope. He calls them yeah. health outliers. He mm -hmm. said, how come we study people like Serena Williams or Steve Jobs, these outliers in sort of athletics or creativity. And we don't study the outliers health. in mm. health. Like why did these people have these very rare, but seemingly miraculous outcomes? And is there anything that we can learn from them? And can yeah, we I was apply? Gonna, I was gonna ask like spontaneous remissions. So from what you've studied, from what he studied, from, from your experience. Yeah, I don't does, think there's spontaneous. How does it happen? How does it happen? Yeah, I mean, Again, Kelly Turner's been studying this. Jeff Redeker's been studying this. I've been studying this. We all have our, we've all come to our conclusions. Mine are in my books. Jeff and Kelly have published mm. their findings as well. You know, for me, the one that no, that that Kelly didn't write about and that Jeff didn't write about, um, and the one that is sort of, I think the um, untapped resource is what happened, like, my theory, this is, the, I'll try to give you a more concrete answer to yeah. one of the questions you asked, like what causes disease? And I believe disease is generally multifactorial, multi-causal, right? Like we could say COVID, a virus causes COVID, but mm -hmm. why does one person die from COVID and one person gets an asymptomatic infection and clears it without a single symptom, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, there is a virus. It is a coronavirus. It causes COVID in some people. It is asymptomatic in other people. I'm interested in like, why does one person, you know, we all make cancer cells every day. Why does one person get breast cancer at 40 and another person makes breast cancer cells every day and dies at 95 without treatment, right? So why, why does the body's self-healing system break down prematurely? That's what I'm interested in. And obviously there are genetic impulses and we have epigenetic influences on those genetic influences. You know, Bruce Lipton has talked a lot about that. There's a lot in the science now about the epigenetics. I don't believe the epigen, I don't, Bruce Lipton's one of those people I disagreed with during the pandemic. I don't believe that we can just 
um, you know, think our way through a novel virus that none of us have antibodies to. And mm -hmm. I do think that, um, you know, if we're in a panicked state of terror, that our nervous systems are going to be dysregulated and that's going to actually interfere with our ability to clear the virus. This is what I wrote about in The Fear Cure. Um, so it, it goes back to those paradoxes. But part of what I think, you know, again, genetic influences aside, living next to a toxic waste dump aside, mm -hmm. poisonous food aside, let's take those other influences. And let's just look at a generally, you know, healthy young person who has experienced trauma. And we have all this data in the um, medical literature now. If any of you are questioning it, the California Surgeon General did a TED Med talk uh, about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, um, 17,000 patients from the CDC and Kaiser Permanente in the 1990s. Uh, yes. Her name is Nadine Burke-Harris, and you can Google Nadine Burke-Harris, TED Med. Um, and we know that like the science is airtight, that trauma causes disease and is probably the number one cause of disease beyond genetics, beyond environmental factors, beyond our food, that the impact on our bodies is extreme. I just did, I just taught a weekend workshop with Richard Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems. And there's a whole chapter in uh, sacred medicine about IFS as medical treatment. And so we just did, uh, we just taught two, 650 people about using this cutting edge trauma therapy um, as part of medical treatment for people with chronic or terminal illnesses. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying do that instead of going to your oncologist. I'm saying do that in addition to going to your oncologist. Um, but that to me is the that's the place that we have not looked is like, we know trauma causes disease. Mm. My, what my interest is we now have these cutting edge trauma treatments that can treat, you know, childhood trauma, developmental trauma, intergenerational trauma, you know, ancestral trauma, collective mm. trauma. Um, if we treat those traumas, can we then reverse some of those illnesses. And the anecdote, the anecdotal evidence is strong, but it's not evidence-based medicine. You know, anecdotes are just stories. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people, that's the thing they haven't tried. And this was sort of the big epiphany that I had when I was running my integrative medicine practice in Marin County, which is full of those people that are doing everything right. They've been to their the best doctors at Stanford and UCSF and they're going to their yoga class every day and they meditate every day and they're raw vegan and they're taking a thousand supplements and they've mm -hmm. been to their naturopath and their acupuncturist. And the one thing they haven't done is addressed their trauma. And when I started doing that work with people, sometimes they would start having relief from symptoms that they'd had for 10 years in three months. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of, that is part of what took me down that road 10 years ago. It was like, wow, what's that? But but we have a lot of work ahead of us to try to even, we don't even know how to research that because again, I don't think you can just take a method like IFS and test it the way you would test a drug. I think it has everything to do with the person delivering the method. Yes. And yes. the consciousness of the person delivering the method and whether they are in their sort of, in, in IFS, you call it self with a capital S. If I'm doing IFS and I'm blended with a traumatized part, I'm not going to get a good outcome with a sick person. But if I'm able to do my own work mm -hmm. and show up with more self to entrain someone else into their 
self energy to activate their self healing to um, calm their nervous system. There, there is a physiology of this, and I, I, for those nerds among you all, it's all written out in sacred medicine. But what we do know is that nervous system regulation is everything for disease regulation. That when the nervous system is chronically dysregulated, you know, we have the whole psychoneuroimmunology of the impact on the limbic part of the brain, on the pituitary gland, on the hypothalamus, on the adrenal glands. We get into these fight, flight, or freeze stress responses that are toxic to the to the organ systems and to the cellular makeup of the body. Um, it's not all in your head. It is in every cell of your body if your nervous system is chronically dysregulated. And we know that that can impact your immune system, that can impact your microbiome, that can impact chronic inflammation. And when there's chronic inflammation in the body, you put a virus like COVID in and all hell breaks loose. There's wow. chronic inflammation in the body and the body makes cancer cells, all hell breaks loose. Like basically chronic inflammation, like there was an article that I quoted in Sacred Medicine that's uh, from Harvard that said like the four horsemen, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse of of modern medicine are basically heart disease, cancer, uh, diabetes, and Alzheimer's, and all of them have been linked to chronic inflammation. And chronic wow. inflammation has been linked to childhood trauma, and mm -hmm. collective trauma, and systemic racism, and all kinds of things like that. So wow. that's my curiosity. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. Like that's the cutting edge for me is, and that's why I'm teaching trauma-informed medicine to doctors. I've been teaching the whole health medicine Institute for 10 years. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the piece that I think the, the wellness world and conventional medicine has undervalued. Mm -hmm. And if we can include the values of like what conventional medicine brings and what the wellness world brings and what the, kind of, the, the, you know, very new and developing field of traumatology is learning. Gabor Mate is one of my yeah. allies in this. He wrote the foreword to sacred medicine um, because we're, we're, we're on that edge of exploring you know, what is the role of um, diagnosing and triaging people's trauma burdens? And can we get those people into appropriate treatment? And then my big issue is my social justice parts are very triggered by the fact that those treatments are a luxury good right now. Yes, yes. They're expensive. They're expensive. Yep. I mean, I pay $250 a week for my cutting edge trauma yep. treatments. Yep. And so I've gotten my first two grant funding um, my first two grants for the nonprofit work that I'm doing at Heal at Last, where we're looking to take something similar to kind of what 12 Step does for people who are in recovery from addiction. Addiction is just one trauma symptom. Mm. And many people um, don't identify as being in recovery from an addiction, but their trauma symptom is a chronic illness mm. or mental illness. And so we're developing sort of circles of peer support, um, our pilot, which we're starting at Harvard, is going to be led um, led by cutting edge trauma therapists. But down the road, our intent, our hope is that it can be maybe even peer led the way twelve step programs are. People who have completed the program can maybe be leading others in the program to be delivering these cutting edge trauma treatments and spiritual healing methods to anybody who wants it um, mm -hmm. by donation only. You know, mm -hmm. in 
churches and community centers and hospitals and mm -hmm. people's backyard or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so we've developed Heal at Last. Um, people can get on the mailing list at healatlast.org if they're interested. Um, and that's really where I've focused my work. I'm sort of Beautiful. not really not really wanting to be like, I'm not really resonating with a lot of the wellness yeah. industry anymore, but I'm, I'm very interested in trauma-informed medicine. So that's kind of where I'm putting a lot of my energies now because the people who need these treatments the most have the least access yeah, yeah. Um, and the least um, financial resources to be able to mm -hmm. address them. So I'm very lucky there are some um, incredibly generous philanthropists who are um, very people with, you know, at the top of the privilege heap who have been chronically ill and have benefited from mm. some of these methods and realize the injustice of that and are wanting to democratize and create more Beautiful. health equity. So that's sort of the edge of my, my interest right now. Beautiful. Beautiful work. Thank I think uh, it's right on because that uh, feels like you're going to be the root of so much of sickness and disease and uh, this next evolution. I'm excited for you and this, this next evolution of, of your work and how that's going to unfold. Mm. Final Thank question. I, yeah, I just wanted to say yeah. that lens that I use on trauma-informed medicine also has given me a lot of compassion for people mm -hmm. that um, kind of went the route of denial and magical thinking and conspiratorial thinking during the pandemic because that too is a trauma symptom. Mm -hmm. Like it mm -hmm. makes sense to me that if we can't tolerate reality, like reality right now is pretty hard to tolerate. It's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty disruptive. It's very, it's been very uncertain. And for people for whom uncertainty was not, not yes. good early in life, um, you know, we might have to go into sort of a fantasy world. Like we're in the mm -hmm. great awakening and we're mm -hmm. moving from the 3D to the 5D and we just have to keep our vibe high and we'll be mm -hmm. rising above all of this. That's a much more comforting thought in some mm -hmm. ways than the reality of like, we might be in a great darkening and we, yeah. we have an opportunity in this great darkening to mm. make collective choices, to make public policies, to make laws, to be social justice activists, to really move the needle. And I highly recommend two books, Carrie Kelly's American Detox and Valerie Kaur's See No Strangers. Beautiful, beautiful books. Um, by very deeply spiritual women who also are in no way spiritual bypassing mm. um, and, you know, real civil rights and social justice activists in the wellness world. Beautiful. So I want to put a we'll, plug we'll, in for my we'll, sister. We'll note those books also in the show yeah. notes as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, I feel like I, we could speak forever. So definitely at some <laughs> point, let, let's, let's come back for a part okay. two because I feel like we're, 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 we're scratching the surface. Yeah, of, I know. Of, of, of the depth and wisdom that you have. Um, and I really appreciate the, the um, what's the word? The sensitivity that you bring to the social justice element and those that don't have access and the privilege to, yeah. to, to these resources and these ideas and all the stuff that we talk about in spirituality, TLC, what have you. It's like, you know, it, it's a luxury. And, and yeah. so... I really appreciate the 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 focus that you're bringing to and the, the compassion to the people that really need it. And yeah. so I'm I'm rooting you on. Just know oh, that I'm, I'm, I'm rooting it's, you on. 
it's difficult. I mean, I'm about to go to Esalen for the month. Talk about yeah. being at the top of the privilege heap. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, this is a very privileged opportunity to like work with with people who have been, you know, really kind yeah. of martyring themselves during during COVID, and they're they're on the work study program, so they're going to be earning their their yes. keep at Esalen this month. But but even still, I'm like, gosh, if only we could give the kind of healing work that mm-hmm. I'm able to deliver at Esalen, if we could, mm-hmm. if we could train people to be able to do that, even if it's not at the scale of what we can deliver at a beautiful retreat center like Esalen, yeah. like how do we at least create communities of healing, yeah. create safe, sacred containers for vulnerability and authenticity, for, you know, telling our stories and showing up and being able to appropriately attune and mirror and validate yes. people's traumatic experiences. And um, so we're, we're working on that. We're, we're working Beautiful. on it. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Final question. Um, you've shared a lot in this conversation. And so these can be kind of bullet points, but if you were just to look at everything you've lived in your life, all the experiences, ups, downs, light, dark, um, if you were to kind of extract the three most important lessons that you feel you've learned in your life, and it may change on a given day or month, but uh, when you feel into it today, the three most important lessons that you've learned in your life that you feel would, like if you could only pass these, these keys to your child and your grandchildren that would evolve the consciousness of the next generation the most, like these are the three things that you feel would evolve the consciousness of the next gen- generation the most. I'm curious what your like three simple mm. key wisdoms would be. Well, I mean, I have a 16 year old girl who identifies on the LGBTQ spectrum. And definitely the thing I've been telling her from the day she was born was, mm. you know, you can be whoever you want to be. Like there is, we all need to grow up knowing that the love of our parents is n- in no way conditional. Yeah. Um, that, that we are free to be ourselves and that we're not risking attachment to our primary attachment figures by being ourselves. And that's how I want to show up with my friends. That's how I want to show up as a mother. It's how I want to show up with my partner. Like how do we create relationships where it's where, where we have boundaries. Sure. I'm not saying do anything and get away with it. Like there absolutely there's consequences and accountability, but to know that, um, that we are, we are lovable, that we can be ourselves and be lovable, even if we're flawed, even if we're imperfect, because that's part of the human experience. I don't believe in human perfection. I don't believe in enlightenment. I don't believe that there's some like white sofa in the sky. And if only we purify ourselves enough, then we can sit on the white sofa and be in bliss and equanimity forever. I, don't, I believe that's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. So I guess just um, giving ourselves permission to be like beautifully human with light and dark, with um with our best intentions and our messiest mistakes. Um, that's really, really important. And then I guess one of the things that I've been writing about a lot lately, but I haven't really put it out in public much is that like, I think we're playing the wrong game of life right now, because right now it seems like it's all about power, how to gain power, how to keep power once we have it, how to, leverage our power how to abuse our power like 
these things, and, and I see this even at places like Esalen, where it's all about human potential. It's like, how can I get these human superpowers? And the minute, the minute we're in a power game where, where power is in any, this really came up in my sacred medicine research. Like I was very, I was overpowered in childhood. That was part of my trauma. So it was sort of natural for me as a survival strategy to sort of collect different kinds of power. Um, becoming a doctor, you know, going to uh, very prestigious universities, becoming a New York Times bestseller, right? Having a social media wellness influencer following. These are various types of power, right? The power of, of wealth or privilege or, or whatever. But p- part of what we, even the winners of that game, I think it became very obvious recently, even the winners are losing. Like yeah. we think Donald Trump is winning. Mm-hmm. Like, He's the winner of the game of power, right? Like he gets all the power and even, and he's losing. Like this game has no, it's an end some game. It's like the cold war, Mm. you know, nuclear war. Like there's no winner in nuclear war. And to me, we're seeing that with all of the positions of power. Um, We are checking their power, right? Like we're looking at the the Harvey Weinsteins, the Jeffrey Epstein's, the Donald Trump's, the all the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter, like um, all of these different movements are Occupy, the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. These are all just questioning those in power. And if until we can, until the people with the most power are willing to sacrifice some of it in order to uplift those with the least, so that we can enjoy the reward of the intimacy that's possible there. I feel like that's that's what we're losing by playing the wrong game. But I haven't really got my elevator speech around this yet. Like maybe this is my next book. But I feel like there's this opening. And this is what I really love about Carrie Kelly and Valerie Kaur's work. They they are they are two of my teachers right now of showing me that there is, if we're willing to sacrifice some of that power and privilege, that what we gain is more valuable and it's this intimacy with life this intimacy with ourselves this intimacy with each other this community of coming together to try to make sure that that everybody has a basic level of of comfort of mm-hmm. um of you know survival needs even yeah. Like, yeah. We, we don't even have that right now right. but the right. disparities of power and privilege and wealth and th- that uh you know, I think Trevor Noah was the one who said something like, it's easier to be an insider as an outsider than to be an outsider as an insider. I'm probably butchering it. Mm-hmm. But but he's basically saying that, like, you know, if you like he wins the game, right? Like as a as a person who might be in an oppressed group yeah. to become Trevor Noah, he's like the winner of the power right. game. But right. then the minute the minute you betray your privilege by speaking out. Yeah about it you get you know you get you trigger mm. the other people in positions of power yeah and so anyway that's sort that's of part of beautiful. yeah I, so. I, I i would um as you're sharing um i want to do a part two with you and so <laughs> okay. and so if you're open to that i yeah. know you're, you're teaching the next month i'm not sure but i would love to go on record and and do a part two so that we can launch part one and two together okay. because the, the conversations on yeah. power. Yeah. And, and I have some questions about 
that and and loneliness and anyway part two okay part two yeah. where, where can people find uh yeah and i want to hear you. your i want to hear your points of view about yeah. these things too you're we'll, we'll, we'll get into you're it. sitting there like you know playing cool the whole time but feel free to like challenge yeah, me and come sure. back and sacred medicine is the book uh yep. encourage everyone to check it out and where can people find out about you and your work well, my main website is my name, L-I-S-S-A-R-A-N-K-I-N.com, LissaRankin.com. And HealAtLast.org is where I'm doing my nonprofit work. We're just getting started. We've been, again, doing fundraising and getting some um, skeleton um, plans set up at Harvard to sort of start our pilot and things like that. Mm. Um, I'm, I post almost every day on my public Facebook page. I'm on Instagram also, but I do less there. I'm 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 a, I'm a writer. I'm a long form writer. So if awesome. people want to stay on the edge of what I'm thinking about Facebook or getting on my newsletter, I have a blog that I send out regularly. Awesome. So yeah. LissaRankin.com. Folks, we're going to post all of Alyssa's uh, links in the show notes. Check out her work. Check out Sacred Medicine. Lissa, thank you for coming on. Yeah, it was to, my pleasure. Thank to you. Be, to be Great. continued. Everyone, um, send me an email, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. I'd love to hear your key takeaways from today's session. A truly enlightening conversation. Share this episode with everyone that you love and get ready for part two, where we're going to go deeper. Love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.